So we are looking at the end of the Gospel of Matthew this afternoon. Uh, as I noted last week, uh, we are going to uh, tie this with our, our conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at the ending here of Matthew, the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, you'll remember that the disciples, uh, after the resurrection, were to meet the Lord Jesus in uh, Galilee. And so here they, um, here they are, meeting with the Lord Jesus on a hill outside of Galilee. Uh, so let's turn to God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 28, 16 to 20, printed for you in your bulletins. You can follow along in your Bibles. It's on the screens as well. Hear God's Word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I ask for your help. Show us the wonders of the good news and compel our hearts to share it with others. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our household, uh, we like jigsaw puzzles. I don't know if you, any of you like jigsaw puzzles. Um, and Erin particularly loves jigsaw puzzles. Unfortunately, she's not here right now. Um, she actually had to go to the hospital, so I just would covet your prayers. Uh, she had a, oh, is she back? And then she's okay. So thank you for your prayers if you found out about that. <laughs> That's an answer to prayer. Um, yeah, it wasn't a major thing, but nevertheless, it was concerning. So we're very grateful that she's back. But anyway, she loves jigsaw puzzles. And so for her birthday, um, I... Uh, got her a jigsaw puzzle. It was a uh, jigsaw puzzle um, that was custom. You know, these days you can get anything printed on anything. So I took a painting that I had painted and uh, made it into a thousand-piece puzzle. That's pretty cool, huh? Uh, Except, and and I thought it would be challenging, but it would have that personal touch. Unfortunately, I I didn't completely think through the picture that I chose, uh, this painting didn't have very clearly defined lines. If you do jigsaw puzzles, you, you, you want those lines, right? Letters, lines, very clear images. Didn't have that. Uh, not only that, but it also had uh, just a mishmash of colors that didn't contrast. Uh, and there were lots of similar things going on. So so Erin looked at it. She's like, oh, it's wonderful. And like was very daunted by the thought of... Uh, putting it together. Uh, it's a jumble right now of broken up colors and shapes, and it does seem a little bit overwhelming to piece together. We haven't, we haven't tackled it yet. The Apostle John, in his vision in the book of Revelation, paints for us a beautiful portrait of the day when Christ returns and all of God's people are gathered around his throne in worship In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, we read this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's a a spectacular image. We often draw on it when we sing and when we read. We We want to paint that vision of glory where People from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered in one place worshiping. What a, what a spectacular event that will be. But when I look at the world today and I consider this vision, it feels like I am looking at this vast, broken puzzle with all the pieces scattered about and wondering, what am I to do? Where do I even start For our scripture this afternoon, it's very clear. You, believer, are called to go and to proclaim all peoples, to all peoples, this hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But like that thousand-piece puzzle, it's an overwhelming task, isn't it? It seems daunting, impossible. And added to, to that challenge, the general challenge that is called to the church, this is what we call the great commission of Jesus Christ, is our current context, I think, adds to the challenge. It feels or it seems as though the world and its peoples are more fractured than ever before, despite the fact that we are vastly interconnected. Like, we can think about it. There's no time in history where We've lived, where any generation has lived, that we've been so connected through the web, by virtue of being able to hop on a plane. Uh, I think they're, they're starting to develop new versions of the supersonic jets so that you can fly across the globe in a matter of hours. Uh, and yet we feel so fractured, don't we? But I don't want us to be discouraged. Rather, I want us to be encouraged to press on in this calling despite the earthly challenges that we might face. Jesus himself encourages us and reminds us that we are called to this task. But here's the key. It is not in our strength. But by the virtue and power of Christ's presence with us by his spirit, we know that we can go out and go to all peoples and share the love of Christ. So believer, this is my call, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Share the love of Jesus, who himself shares his love with you. So I want us to consider this in four parts this afternoon. First, I want us to consider sharing Jesus boldly. Second, I want us to consider sharing the whole Christ, all of him and all his beauty. Third, I want us to share Christ with all peoples. What does it mean when we say all peoples? And then I want us to land on the gospel and consider what does it mean that Christ shares himself with us. 
first, sharing Jesus boldly. We've talked a lot about the disciples uh, over the course of the past months, even year. Uh, we've talked about their fear, particularly after the crucifixion. With a few exceptions, the disciples of Jesus abandoned Jesus at the cross. Of course, we looked at the faithfulness of those women last week who went to the tomb and how they, they persisted. They stayed with Jesus at the crucifixion, at the burial, and then were with him at the tomb. And while they were at the tomb, they met the angel who said, go tell the disciples that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He'll meet you in Galilee. Go. Now, I've mentioned this before, um, but this was a gracious act of the Lord Jesus to say, I'll meet you up in Galilee. Why? Well, Galilee was for the disciples their home base. It was the place of comfort. It was familiarity. It was family. It was their people. It was comfortable. So Jesus meets them there on the shores of the Lake of Galilee. We remember that he restores John, right? He says to him, John, do you love me? I'm not John. Peter, do you love me? And here in our text this afternoon, he meets them on a mountain, a place in the Gospels the mountain, whatever mountain it was, whatever hill it was around the shore of Galilee, around that area, uh, mountains were a place in the Gospels that were often a retreat for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus would often go up into the mountains and pray, or he would meet his disciples there intimately, and they would, they would be together. And so he meets them there in their home base on this mountain alone to, to encourage them, to remind them of his presence with them, and to tell them to go and to make disciples. And yet they're wary, they're fearful. As Jesus approaches, the text says that when they saw him, some of them bowed down and worshipped him. They recognized him right away, but then others of them doubted. We know from the other gospel accounts that Thomas himself was one of those who doubted. Unless I touch the wounds in the hand, unless I touch the, the side, I, I won't believe. I don't know what they were thinking as Jesus approached them and they were sitting there wondering, what is this news about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Is it true? Could it really be true? And as this man approaches, I wonder what they thought, those ones that doubted. Maybe he's an imposter. We don't know. We don't know. We're not told. But as Jesus approaches and as some bow and others doubt, Jesus speaks. And the first thing that he says is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's interesting. Why begin with those words? Why begin there? Why say these words to his disciples? Well, first, it was a declaration of Jesus, of being invested with authority. Uh, you'll remember throughout the gospel, Jesus came in humility. He came, uh, he the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, he was, uh, came in humility. He came in weakness. And throughout the gospel accounts, what, what we notice is that oftentimes when, when he did a miraculous sign, uh, he, and the people would be excited, maybe he did a healing, and the person who was healed was like, I want to go tell the world. What would he say? Do you remember? Don't tell anybody. Why? That was strange, right? Well, he would say that because his time had not yet come. He was, of course, going to the cross. And until that had happened, 
the, the, the sort of explosion of the gospel going out wasn't going to occur. It had to go to the cross first. But now he has died. He's been resurrected. He is now there before them as the resurrected Lord. And as we read in Philippians chapter 2, which says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it say after that? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? There's a purpose. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. He's been given authority. And so he declares this to his disciples. You see, at this moment, the disciples were weak. They thought the the cross was a setback. Even if Jesus was there in front of them, they must have thought, we got to start all over. Everything is broken down. But Jesus is saying, no, now is the time. Now is the moment in history when my authority and power will be manifest. Now is the time when the world will come to me and worship. And the most wondrous aspect of the manifestation of Christ's power and authority to gather to himself the world to worship is that his disciples, these broken men, some who doubted, some who needed to be restored, these sinners, the church, us, are Christ's instruments. That is the most spectacular thing. Christ uses broken sinners to build his kingdom. And we see this in Jesus' words when he says to them, after declaring his investiture of authority and power, he says, go therefore, right? Therefore, because I have all authority and power, because I am the one in charge, and because I am with you, go In your weakness, in your brokenness, go and make disciples. I want to notice something here about the text. It says, go therefore and make disciples. And go is an interesting translation here because in the English translation, go is not an imperative, all right? Make disciples is in the imperative. So in the Greek, uh, go is not in the imperative, Now, go does mean that we're called to become uh, participants as we go out, but but I want to be clear. Some might be called to full-time missionary work. Um, Some may be called to go to far-flung places. Uh, Maybe this is the case for some of you. I don't know what the Lord has burdened in your heart, but I know as, as a pastor, as somebody who has wrestled with my call at various times, I thought, Lord, are you calling me to go to the ends of the earth? I don't know. And I've, in, I've investigated, and, but the Lord has brought me to Connecticut, which may be the end of the earth for some people uh, who've moved here or whatever. But this is, you know, this is my home, so it doesn't feel that way. Um, but some may be called to that. Someone like the Grottens, burdened particularly with the disabled people of Chile and how they were called to go and to leave the comfort of Connecticut. But in the Greek here, the word go is not imperative. Rather, it's a participle. You might put ing ending on it, right? So 
going would maybe be a, a more literal translation. I mean, you might say it's something like, in your going, make disciples. In your going, make disciples. Wherever you go, you may be called to go far and wide, but maybe not. But wherever you go, whether you go to work, or you go into your school, whether you go uh, to your place of relaxation and fun, where, whether you go to your family, he's saying, go and make disciples. In your going, make disciples. The imperative is in that. For these poor disciples, I'm guessing this call seemed very daunting, but the Lord of heaven and earth was commissioning them, and so to his church throughout the ages, that their mission was to make disciples. It's a daunting task, as we have already outlined. Current world and culture seems to make it worse. Not only is Christianity becoming more marginalized, at least in our context here in America, but our values and morals are more and more opposed to the culture of the world. No longer does the church speak with moral authority. There was a time in this country where you, as the church, would say something and they would be like, aha, that seems true and right. That's not the case. In fact, it seems to be more on the defensive as a church. Christian institutions are facing scrutiny over perceived prejudices or discrimination. And I think it is part of our fear, our temptation to say, okay, what do we do? We better build up a wall of defense. We better hole up in this place, to wait out the storm, to preserve what we've got, to lay low. That's the, that's the, that's the preservation mentality. And, and as a pastor, I, I get it. The last thing I want to do is to become a target. But I don't want you to miss Jesus' words here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. To him, and to him, to you. In the, in the sense that you've been empowered by the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord who rules over the nations and over the hearts of all people. Our role is not to change hearts and minds of people. I want you to hear that again as I say it. Your role as you go out and to share the love of Christ with others is not to change their hearts. Hopefully that takes a little bit of weight off your back. Your, your role is to share the gospel, to, to proclaim it. And then to rest, knowing that the Lord Jesus has authority and power to change the hearts and minds of people. So we don't need to fear man. We don't need to fear the response of people. That's not our job. Rather, we ought to fear the Lord. The godly fear that recognizes Christ as Lord compels us in our going to make disciples with all boldness. We're ambassadors with the King of glory as our King. We are people of hope and of confidence because our hope and confidence is not in ourselves, but in Jesus. As you go, share Christ boldly. Second, though, we're going to share the whole Christ. We are, I think, a results-driven people. <laughs> I think it's just written into our DNA as Americans. Uh, maybe particularly here in New England, I think it's maybe even more so. Um, you, you have that you know, line from, I 
Maybe it was Jerry Maguire. Show me the money, right? That, that's kind of what we are. We're like, you know, show me the money. Or in the case of evangelism and gospel outreach, show me the numbers. You know, how many people have come to Christ you know, I, that's, all, that's all that matters is getting, getting numbers in the door. When I was preparing to be a pastor, I was uh, considering if I was called to church planting, so I went to our denominational church planting assessment center, and they scrutinized everything about you. It was fairly uncomfortable, but it was, it was a good process. But they wanted to scrutinize everything. How were you at strategic planning? How were you at gospel preaching? They did psychological evaluations. They examined your relationship in depth with your wife, going into great detail and counseling. They wanted to know how well you engaged with cultures and peoples, all good things. It was helpful, and I understood why they did this. But there was one question that bothered me that they probed. They asked the question, how many people came to Christ through your ministry? That bothered me. What they were trying to measure was, how effective were you at bringing about conversion? And now, I want to be fair to the, to the assessment center. They understood that it was God who converted people, not the preacher. But they were trying to assess how effective and winsome you were as a potential church planter. But the thing that bothered me was the numbers. How many people? But I think it's because we are a numbers-driven society, a results-oriented society. But it's striking here what Jesus calls the church to do. He says, go and make disciples. And then what does he go on and say? He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It's not just get them into the door, get them baptized, and then go on to the next. But it's saying, that person is now a disciple, and you need to train them. You need to teach them. You need to raise them up. You need to equip them. You need to tell them all that I have commanded to you. That's a lot, right? The emphasis is on discipleship, making followers of Jesus and all that he commands. This means that there is at no point in the life of believers where they are no longer in that process of becoming, of becoming. We are all becoming more and more like Jesus. And it means that there's no end in our growing in knowledge and understanding and obedience of Jesus and no end in sharing Jesus with somebody. You may walk with them the rest of your life. You've called them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they come into relationship in the church and now you are with them as your brother and sister and you have the opportunity to walk with them for as long as the Lord has. There's no end. The relationship will change and shift as you grow, but we all are continuing on that journey of growing in knowledge and understanding and obedience in the gospel. So when we think of making disciples and are going about our life, we ought to have in mind sharing the whole Christ with people, not just getting them in the door, so to speak. And this has implications. It means involving ourselves in the mess of people's lives and letting others involve themselves in our mess. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means being willing to speak the truth in love and being willing to listen to the truth in love spoken to you. It means not just teaching with words, but it means modeling obedience to Christ and to others. 
never forgetting the reality of point one. Christ has all authority and power, and he is the one who enables us to grow in him and to follow him and to obey him. This is why I love our membership vows. Uh, Vow three says, do you now resolve and promise, it's a strong statement, I now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Lord Jesus. So like, I now will resolve and promise that I am not able, but the Lord Jesus is, by his spirit, to live as becomes the followers of Christ. That's what we are called to, to walk in discipleship, to teach one another, to sharpen one another, to encourage one another, to convict one another, to, to walk alongside one another, to share the whole Christ. This brings me to my third point. Share the Christ with all people. Share the Christ with all people. The word here for nations is the Greek word ethne. It's the word through which we get the word ethnic or ethnicity. Nations, at least in the way we often use the word anyway, I don't think quite fits the idea. We think of nation states, of political borders and the like. But in reality, the world deals more with People. The word deals more with people groups. Um, and John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, explores what this idea of people groups means. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of nail it means exactly this, but he says it's defined by shared language, culture, family, geography, etc. And in the end, he kind of says yes to all of these things, but he says it may refer to something as small as, say, a clan or a tribe in some remote village, some far-flung place. But it also is a word that could refer to a nation of people, a whole people. Ethne kind of has that, that breadth to it. It can mean a people group of a, a, a particular language. Scripture uses this language, all peoples, to describe all the very diverse groups of people scattered over the entire globe who are going to be gathered around the throne of Christ at that day. And the marvelous thing about the gospel is that it, it is to go to all of them. There is not one group of people that is left out. It's a grand vision, a grand picture. All peoples, everywhere, all groups. And this was a promise, of course, made to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations, all the ethnos of the world, would be blessed. I want to think about this a little more specifically in our culture and context. It goes without saying that we live in a particularly racially charged moment in our nation. It's always existed. There's this, this part of our, uh, the shame of our nation is this division. And in this moment, though, there's a deepening division between peoples. There's a pressure on everyone to hunker down in their ethnic and cultural silos. There's a deep distrust for sometimes legitimate reasons and sometimes not so legitimate reasons. And even for those who are inclined to reach across those divides, there is fear. There's anxiety. There's a feeling of helplessness. But here's the wonder of Christ and his power and authority on display. He calls these Jewish disciples, these 11 men, to go to all the ethnos of the world. 
He calls them to go. In the Hebrew, it would be goyim. It's a word uh, used to talk about all, all those peoples out there. They are not circumcised. They are not part of us. They are not holy. They are not the people of God. We know that some of these same disciples faced challenges in this regard. Peter, in particular, would struggle at first to view the ethnos of the world on equal footing in the gospel to the Jewish converts, to the Jewish Christians. Why? Well, their practices were foreign. Many of them were uncircumcised. They ate unclean foods, even foods that had been sacrificed to idols. And his whole life, he thought of the Gentiles as unclean. And now Jesus was commanding them to go and make them into disciples, equal partners, sharers in eternity with God and them, brothers and sisters. Peter struggled with this. You can read about it. Go look at it in the book of Galatians. Peter was confronted. He was, in fact, rebuked by the Apostle Paul. Not only that, but earlier in his ministry, the Lord Jesus had to give him a vision. You remember this vision when we studied the book of Acts, but a a net came down in this vision and was full of all unclean animals, and there was a voice that said, go and eat. That was about as radical a thing as Peter could imagine. But Peter changed. And in the end of his ministry, he wrote to the church in Asia Minor, which was made up of a mixed crowd of people, mixed with Greek and Jewish people, a church that had been uh, cobbled together in a very, very difficult location in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And in the beginning of his letter to that, those churches, he called them and he, he, called, he said to them, you are the elect exiles of the dispersion. He used language that would have been reserved exclusively for the Jewish people, but now he's applying it to them all, to all the Gentiles, saying, you are God's people. You are elect. You are exiles that are looking forward to glory. You are God's people. I think it's often the case that no matter the fact that I look out at you all and we are all Gentiles, right? Maybe some of you have Jewish background. I don't know that. But generally speaking, we're all Gentile converts, Um, But I still think it's often the case that we begin to believe the kingdom of God looks like us. Like our culture. Like our ethnic expression of the church. I am a multi-generational Presbyterian with Scottish roots. That's about as Presbyterian as you can get. I'm deeply attached to the expression of of my faith. Um, I, I, I love it. But there is a temptation for me to believe that we have the truest expression of faith here at CCPC or in the Presbyterian world. And I think this inhibits us. I think it inhibits our ability to go and make disciples of all ethnos, of all peoples. It's a wondrous picture, the Revelation picture, the one that I painted at the beginning, because ethnic distinctions are in glory, they are not done away with. You notice, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around. That means there is distinction of ethnicity in the eternal church, in in the triumphant church. Think about that for a minute. John Piper 
says that the diversity of heaven is intentional and eternal. And he gives four reasons that I want to share with you. From This is from John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And it's a good book. I highly recommend it. He says that, the fir- in, that first, there is a beauty and power of praise that comes from unity in diversity that is greater than that which comes from unity alone. He quotes Psalm 96, 3 and 4, and he says, where it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And then he goes on. What does it look like for the Lord to be greatly praised? It is when the chorus of the nation, nations, the, the ethnos, when they sing together, when they come together in their various expressions and they sing together, and he likens it to a choir in its parts, right? It adds depth and richness to the voice. The second thing he says, the reason that he thinks uh, heaven is intentional, intentional and eternally diverse, he says, the fame and greatness of the worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. I'm going to say that again because that's a lot to say. The fame and greatness of the worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. Uh, He uses the example of great works of art. Great works of art transcend when peoples, not just from a unicultural world, recognize that it's good, but when it transcends and all peoples or many peoples recognize the, the, the wonder of that piece of art, right? It transcends it. And he goes on and he says this, which I think is really interesting. He says, when all peoples praise God, it speaks to God's universal fame and greatness, God that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. In other words, God is so beautiful and wonderful that it's only natural that the whole world would come and recognize him as such. Like that's the picture he's trying to paint. The third reason Piper gives as to why diversity in heaven is both intentional and eternal is that the strength and wisdom and love of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. In other words, when people recognize him as the king and the king of kings and the Lord of lords as the one who is the greatest, there is no other God like him. He has superiority over all other gods that make pretentious claims. The more diverse the people groups who forsake their gods to follow the true God, the more visible is God's superiority. Finally, Piper says, by focusing on all the people groups of the world, God undercuts ethnocentric pride and puts all peoples back upon his free grace rather than on any distinctive of their own. It makes us humble to recognize the breadth and depth and richness of the people of God. It humbles us. So where does that leave us? I think it ought to leave us with this grand desire to leave our silos, our cultural enclaves, and go out and share the love of Christ with all peoples.
with all ethnos, that we might more readily see the wonder of God's universal and diverse love as he brings all peoples together to worship him. And this brings me to my final point, conclusion. The task is grander and more overwhelming than we can imagine. Sharing Jesus seems beyond our capacity. Never mind sharing him with all peoples. But here's the good news that I want to land on. Christ shares himself with us. He said to his disciples before he ascended to heaven, Behold, see, I am with you all, always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Embedded in this grand word of comfort is this truth. Christ dwells with us. He is Emmanuel. He came to us. He died for us. He rose again for our salvation. And he's coming again to bring us home. And in the meantime, the Lord of heaven and earth is dwelling with his people. There is no reason that he should have dwelt with Abraham. He was a pagan. He didn't trust in the Lord, but the Lord met him. He came to him. There was no reason he should have remained with Israel. They were a stiff-necked people who rebelled against him and worshipped false gods, and yet he came to them, and he dwelt with them, and he persisted with them, and he called them his own, and there's no reason that the Lord Jesus should dwell with us except because of his love. He comes to us and he reveals his love to us. He dies for us and he empowers us by his spirit to go and to spread this same love to others wherever we're going. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, you're hearing this great God and Savior Jesus Christ, hearing about him for the first time. Maybe you're here hearing about him for the millionth time, but don't miss it. There was no greater gulf in all the world or between any people groups, as there was a gulf between heaven and earth, between God and man. And yet, he came, and he dwelt among us. We rebelled against him, and yet he came and and was born of Mary, and was suffered, and he was crucified, and he died for us. And he was raised again, and he ascended into heaven. But he is with us always. Believer, there is no greater comfort knowing that as we go and share Christ's love, he's always sharing himself with us. We can rest in that comfort, rest in his power, rest in his love. Let's pray.